0: This morning we're reading from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages." Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure." No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm excited that the pastors gave me an opportunity to be up here today uh, as we open God's Word, as we're rolling through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And, and today he's dealing with uh, a few really important matters within the household of God. So if you'd please pray with me before we start. Lord, we just thank you for your Word, for your instruction, for your grace. As you look through the text today, Lord, just uh, please illuminate it for us in our hearts and our minds. Let it sink in and, and transform us. And, and Lord, as a church, let us be under your word. Let it guide us through your spirit, and let us be joyfully obedient to it. Guide my words this morning, Lord. Let this be a pleasing message to you. And we thank you. We praise you in all things. Amen. All right. Now, I'm sure that a lot of you guys have been part of a team, a business, or some other entity where you had someone that directed your course. Let's take the last few Super Bowl teams, the, uh, the Patriots, the Broncos, the Seahawks. Now, granted, some of these guys had some like dynamite athletes on the team, but do you think that their coach had anything to do with their part in winning? Of course. Right? I mean, look at uh, Bill Belichick with the Patriots or Pete Carroll with the the Seahawks or uh, Gary Kubiak when with the Broncos. Uh, Huge, huge part of their winning. When we look at the top, the leadership, we can see there's an incredible responsibility these guys have in directing and moving their team to a goal. Now, your boss at work, or if you are the boss... You have uh, an agenda to produce and move in a direction that's going to make you grow. And if you're like me, I'm sure you've had a boss where you just don't like him. He or she is brash. They're self-serving. They have double standards. They're probably very prideful. And you probably think that they're unqualified for their job. And maybe you've written your boss off. But within the company or team, there's someone that you can put your confidence in, that you can listen to, that you can wrestle through stuff with. And they have kind of become your de facto leader because of the poor leadership of the current leader. And we know that this is not best. And in employees and other leaders in the place, they won't discipline or call out poor leadership because they're afraid of what the recourse might be. Or maybe they're afraid and they don't want to hurt their feelings. And it's all things that we deal with on a daily basis. And the church doesn't escape this as well. In fact, biblical leadership is expounded on all over the Bible, especially with Paul's letter to Timothy. And in it, we can see the importance of leaders. Now, as we have looked at 1 Timothy these past several weeks, we can see that he's laid out not just the roles and qualifications of of leaders or elders or how we treat widows or other family members within the household of God. But ultimately, we see this letter as a way to protect the truth of the gospel. The gospel that Christ came to live in our place, that he came to die in our place, and that he defeated death and lives in glory, which he imparts to us by his spirit, that we can be made new in Christ and we can glorify and enjoy all that he has done and, and is. And the discussion of church offices and leadership is simply a larger piece of the argument that the true gospel, in contrast to false teaching, is always going to lead to godliness and faith and order into its adherence. First Timothy is this clear call for the church to live out in tangible ways, those ethical implications of the gospel. And church leaders should be peoples whose lives are shaped by the gospel. And that's what we see here today in the text. Now Paul starts out the letter of 1 Timothy with a pretty warm, pretty personal tone. This has been his partner in the mission team. Paul and Timothy have been hooked up since his second missionary journey. And this was started around 49 A.D. And we see the letter of 1 Timothy was written about 62 A.D., so we can see over the course of a decade or so, they've been through a lot together. And we see that, that compassion roll out and his affection through this letter. But now in, in verses 17 to 25, we see his tone change a bit as he deals with, and he brings his attention to church order or church polity matters. Now, to me, church government, it can be pretty boring. But it lays the essential groundwork on how we treat And how we work with, and how we honor, how we accuse, how we vet, and even how we discipline elders. It's all good stuff, because without it, or if we ignore it, the church is going to fall into disorder. There's going to be power struggles, and abuse of authority, and above all, a dishonoring of Christ's name. And you can just look at the news almost any day of the week to see another pastor succumb to those sinful patterns. We see how damaging that is to the church. So this morning, as we dive in, I'm going to give three guidelines in the text for keeping good order in the church so that we can uphold the gospel of Christ. First one is this, is honoring elders. The second is going to be disciplining elders. And the third is to appoint or confirm elders into the church. So let's look at the first one, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, now back in chapter 3, Pastor Dan uh, preached through this, and we have laid out what the character components are of elders, but we don't have a job description for them in that. We see what kind of men they are to be, and I think it's worth it. It'll be up on the screen here to look back on chapter 3, it's verses 2 through 7, as to what these elders should be, what kind of men they should be. They should be, one, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, these are the godly qualifications that are set for an elder. But here today, in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us what they do. They rule or they govern the church, the NFV Translate it this way. It says, Let the elders who direct the affairs of the church well. And this ruling or administration, we know, is principally a spiritual business. These spiritual leaders manage God's household. They teach biblical doctrine. They pray for those under their care. They visit them. They encourage them. They may even warn sheep who are going astray. And they welcome those who repent back home. And you can see within verse 17 here, that there's going to be various roles within that elder group. We see elders who rule or manage, and we see another role that has an emphasis in preaching and teaching. As Verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we know that all elders are elders who rule. And we also see from 1 Timothy 3, all elders should be able to teach. But there's a distinct mention here of elders who labor in preaching and teaching to be worthy of double honor. And At WCC here, we have a plurality of elders. Pastor Dan, Pastor Chris, Pastor Pat, and Pastor John. We can see that all of them have been up here to preach and teach through the Word of God. This is a requirement that they can do that. But as you can see, not all of them share this pulpit equally. Our elders, they have unity but not necessarily that uniformity, as and they don't all do 25% of every job in the administration of the church. Of the plurality of our pastor team, there's a giftedness in certain areas. And they work together to put each in a place where they can exercise that giftedness. Dan, Pastor Dan, is for the most part the elder that is m- most laborious in preaching and teaching up front. And scripture tells us that we should honor that. Not just honor, but double honor that. And we'll get to what that means in a minute. But let's define those words, preaching and teaching. Uh, They're pretty much synonymous with each other, but preaching would be defined as having a more practical, maybe exhortation, application part to it. And the uh, teaching would be more focused on doctrinal matters or learning. And both are done from the pulpit, but both are also done outside of the pulpit. If you've done biblical distinctives, you've had Pastor John teach up there, If you've been through called to mission or called to obedience or counseling or a shepherding meeting, you've had Pastor Pat teach through those things. If you've been a part of worship or music or youth or missions, counseling, you've had Pastor Chris teach through those. These men have labored in these roles. They've spent time researching and praying and working. They don't just come up here and do it on a whim and they do it for this church body. So this is an honorable thing to do in the Lord. When we see the verse 17, it says that these should be worthy of double honor, especially those ones who labor in preaching and teaching. Now what the heck does double honor mean? And I think the first honor is specifically just for that office of elder, the position itself. And I'm going to open up Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 17, and I think this uh, brings into focus some of this, says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as the ones who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage of you. Now, I think that that is honoring to the office of elder, just to obey and submit, because their number one interest is in your salvation, Now I think that's the first part of being worthy of honor. But we have double honor and we can see this other part of honor comes from just earlier in chapter 5 where Pastor Chris taught last week. Within that same context, honor was used to show provision or stipend or compensation. In in English we call it an honorarium, uh, compensation or or, uh, a stipend that we give for someone who has taught or preached or done a service for the church. This is how it was used when Pastor Chris taught in chapter 5, verse 3, where it says to honor widows who are truly widows. So with double honor, we can see the twofold honor this way. Uh, One is to the office or that position of elder. And the next is giving support for their work. Now, Paul qualifies this statement on this as he's quoting from Old Testament case law from Deuteronomy verses, uh, or chapter 25, verse 4, he quotes that you should not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And then Paul quotes again saying, the laborer deserves his wages. Both of these are analogies from the farm, and we can uh, break them down a bit. That muzzle on the ox while treading is like this. This was uh, new for me, uh, learning. Um, But they'll cut down a crop. Let's say it's wheat, and at the top of that stalk, there's a spike that holds the, the wheat berries or, or kernels in that, and they'll cut them down, and they'll lay them down on the ground. This is back in, in biblical times. They'll lay them down on the ground, and they'll have oxen come and just trample over those things. That's treading, and that's to push out those berries so that they can collect those things and make food out of them. Now, to have an ox work like this and be muzzled, that's, that's hard labor, and not being able to eat some of that food that he's producing would seem pretty cruel. So if he's fat, he's going to work harder, he's going to have more energy, and everybody wins. So Paul is interpreting this verse and applying it to elders. And if we have doubt on that, we can see the next quote, where it says, the laborer deserves his wages. And this isn't the first time it's been laid out in Scripture. This is from Christ. It's from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7, where he's sending out those 72 to uh, the different cities to preach Christ and his kingdom. And he says that those laborers that he sent out are deserving of a wage. He told them to accept food and to accept lodging in exchange for their labor, which is their praying, their healing, their teaching. So Paul is telling Timothy that those who are laboring and teaching and preaching in a local congregation should be supported by those of that local congregation. And we can see another iteration of this in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7-11, we can see this continuity roll out. We have the same type of things where Paul says this, who serves as as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Now, I think it's pretty striking that uh, Paul puts this out to Timothy in this context and to this church in Corinth, because Paul himself, he was really flexible about this. He would receive support from some churches that he ministered to, and other times, he'd refuse it. Like in Thessalonica, that was a terribly poor church. He'd be a tent maker, and you have that for his compensation. He'd provide for his own means. But other churches, like the one in Philippi, uh, he gladly would take support from them. And we can see with his time in that Corinthian church that if they thought that he was getting money just for the sake of money that he wouldn't do it. A couple verses later, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, Paul says this, he says, I'm not writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So he's telling Timothy that basic principle, the church ought to support the labor of its pastors. Now, does this mean that we should pay pastors hundreds of thousands of dollars? Should they be flying around on private jets like uh, other prosperity gospel teachers do. Uh, pastor Dan, is, is that why you had me up here today? Chris, do you guys want that? Should we rally for that? I don't think we can pull it out of the text. Uh, it's pretty plain. A pastor is a laborer, and he should probably get paid the going rate of a respected, educated laborer. I think in different cities with different standards of living, uh, that's going to be a different amount. I think the size of the congregation is probably going to come into the equation. And in our plurality, we have a tent maker. Pastor John gets his income from another job. But I'm pretty positive that our elders would be in agreement with Paul, as Paul was speaking to the church in Corinth, that if it was all about the money, that they would rather die than to lose their ability to boast in the cross, and the cross alone. And for that, uh, I, I am just glad and appreciative that we do have the ability to compensate our pastors, their work, how much they work, they pray, they cry, they lead, and they grow the spiritual lives of us at WCC, and I think that's well-deserved. I'm going to move on to the second point here. Paul goes on in verses 19 and 20 to deal with a really serious topic, the topic of disciplining elders. elders. Paul says that elders who do their work well are deserving of double honor. That also means that there's elders who just don't work well. And this is where Paul talks about due process for bringing charges against the elder. He says in verse 19 this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see that's part of our American legal system. It's a background for innocent until proven guilty. This goes back a lot further, back in Deuteronomy again, in chapter 19. We read the due process procedure that Paul is using here. Uh, Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19, it says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we see that when a charge is brought before a judge in Israel, You needed to have two or three witnesses. And Paul's appealing to the same principle when disciplining elders. And I need to go on a a side note here. Um, This is right in stride with how we're to deal with brothers and sisters who are in sin. Matthew 18 uses very similar language when Christ says this. We're going to start in verse 15 through 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the witness or the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. If you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I know a lot of people like to say that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, it says that it means that God is present, or that that is Church. Uh, But the context on that stuff begs to differ. This is in direct relation to God's approval of discipline on a court of two or three witnesses. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. I approve of this process. And this is confirmed in many areas of the Bible that discuss biblical discipline. Now, let's be honest. Is it true that where two or three are gathered, God is there? Of course it's true. But he's there if you're alone as well. Or what about if you have five or six people? Because the verse only says two or three. Is he going to be there? Of course he is. But we got to be careful not to pull those verses out of context. I think it's one of the more highly abused verses out there. But coming back to that, the due process of disciplining elders, I think we know that it's, it's really possible to smear and sometimes even destroy a person's good name by rumor and by gossip, it's all too common in society today. I mean, just look at politics. Like, it's crazy. Um, athletics, business owners, teachers. Let's take an honest moment and look at our conversations we really have with our friends and family. I mean, how much gossip abounds in those conversations? I mean, I was so convicted, just reflecting back on the conversations that I have. And great damage is done when rumors abound, even when they're found out to be false. This is certainly true about elders in the church. Satan himself is out to destroy their ministry and bring dishonor in the church. I know you can talk to any pastor who's in the trenches, and they can affirm that Satan is vicious against them and their work. But we have to see that this caution uh, about attacks against these elders in the church doesn't mean that elders are above the law. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, that as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now elders who sin publicly and who fail to heal the warning of rebukes, and they persist in that sin, they betray the trust of the church put in them. The holiness of Christ's church is compromised. And dishonor is brought upon that office of elder. There's a biblical principle that private sins are to be dealt with privately, like we read in the beginning of Matthew 18. But the public sins that are known to many and scandalize Christ's names, they're to be dealt with publicly. I can imagine Timothy, he's a young guy, probably younger than the rest of the elders in his team. And probably younger than most of the people in his congregation. And I'm sure he didn't relish the idea of confronting older men about their behavior. But few things are more damaging to the body of Christ when trying to cover up sin when the whole church knows about it. So Paul tells us why there must be this public rebuke in verse 20. It says, so the rest may stand in fear. And what is that fear? I don't think it's just the fear of public rebuke, but it's that fear of bringing dishonor to God. And then who are the rest that Paul is talking about here? The rest may stand in fear, it says. Well, it's probably the rest of the elders. But it could also be the part of the congregation who has seen that elder sinning. And now they're witnessing the public rebuke as well, which is a powerful deterrent to sinning, am I right? They see the holiness of God being held up in the church, and this is a powerful witness. And now when Timothy received this letter, as with the rest of the epistles in the the New Testament, he would read it aloud and teach on this to that whole congregation in Ephesus. I think he might be tempted to skip out on this part in hopes that all the the problems he has with his fellow elders are just going to go away on their own. But you know that the problems in the church never go away by themselves. You sweep something under the rug and the smell is soon going to reek to everyone. So in verse 21, Paul gives a really solemn charge to him. He says this, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now I think elders are going to face that temptation to soft-pedal the discipline of another elder. I mean, they're probably going to be close, personal friends who've done ministry with for years. This elder could have a huge influence in the church. And so Paul charges Timothy, don't play favorites. Don't go into a case prejudging the verdict without hearing all of the evidence. Just consider what the congregation will think when the elders who are in charge of discipline for the whole church and when the elders uh, refuse to discipline one another and they refuse uh, to, to treat each other with those biblical standards, what message does that send to the rest of the church? Timothy needs to know that also that it's not just the congregation who is watching what the elders do. Paul says in verse 21, he says, it's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. Those elect angels are being those that haven't fallen together with Satan. They stand in purity with God. They serve him, and he says continues says, "I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul is calling on ministers from all ages to something like this: to think of the final judgment. Now visualize this with me when you 're going to be standing before the throne of God and all of the angelic hosts." are singing, holy, holy, holy. And you see the Lamb of God seated at the right hand, and the elect angels are gathered around that throne. And on that day, there's going to be perfect justice rendered. There will be a judgment to end all judgments. And Paul says to Timothy and to all the elders, when you seek to administer discipline, or when you shy away from it and fail to do so, remember, they are watching you. You live and you worship in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. That's an awesome thought. I mean, it kindles that kind of awe and fear in God, in his church. And that's why Paul charges Timothy to be scrupulously fair in his administration of discipline in the church. Don't prejudge. Don't do anything from partiality. Which leads to our final, our third point, and that's appointing or confirming elders. Paul picks this up in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. But before Paul speaks about appointing and confirming elders, he's got a bit of personal advice to Timothy. Paul advises Timothy in verse 23 to this He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, to me, this advice seems a little strange right in the middle of Paul's teaching on how to deal with elders in the church. But I I really suspect it has something to do with the problem of asceticism. And Paul addresses this asceticism back in chapter 4. Pastor Pat talked on that in the first five verses. Uh, And I encourage you to go back and and listen to that message. But asceticism, by definition, is a severe self-discipline or an avoidance of all forms of uh, indulgence. And it's typically for religious reasons. And this was commonplace back then to a good number of, of Jews and of various religious sects of the day. But we know that asceticism, it's an extreme. The Bible never suggests that a Christian should purposely seek out discomfort and pain. These false teachers were teaching that living on to God, living in a way that is pleasing to God, came not by obeying God's commandments motivated by love and by the Spirit, but it came by giving up certain food and drink and even marriage. And you remember how Paul counters this false teaching in chapter 4, as Pastor Pat taught, by teaching and affirming the goodness of everything that God has created and the freedom that Christians have and enjoying it as a gift from God. And Timothy may well have been influenced by that teaching of asceticism, and was withdrawing from enjoying God's gifts. And the pressures of pastoral ministry were probably uh, giving Timothy some health problems. So that's why Paul tells Timothy, take some wine. Uh, most likely for that medicinal purposes. Now some people think this verse shouldn't be in the Bible. Someone snuck it in at a later time. Uh, we, we can see that's not affirmed. It's corroborated uh, with the earliest of manuscripts all over that, that area but it does raise a number of questions as to how do we apply Paul's words here. The Bible's very careful about the use of alcohol, and so should we be. In another letter written by Paul to this church in Ephesus, we we read in Ephesians 5.18, he warns clearly against the sin of drunkenness because it leads to a loss of self-control and various other sins. But nowhere does he forbid its use, Provided it be in moderation? I mean, we're not commanded to be teetotalers, but we're not allowed to be drunkards either. And reflecting on this, as a believer, there might be situations where Christians just decide to abstain from it just because. And that's good. Or maybe when you might be uh, causing another brother to stumble, to, to violate someone's conscience. Paul speaks that in Romans 14, Romans chapter 14, a lot. And that's a good thing to abstain that way. Or perhaps you have a a past history of abusing alcohol, and you think it's prudent and wise to abstain. And all of these are a part of our Christian liberty that we can exercise. But the real point of this passage, as Paul picks up in verse 22, is this. is to not be hasty in the laying on of hands, not taking part in the sins of others, keeping yourself pure, in verse 22. So what does Paul mean by that laying on of hands? He's talking about that confirmation or appointing of people to the office of elder in the church. It's the Holy Spirit who gives gifts and then calls people to the ministry. And then over time, the church is going to recognize those gifts and they're going to lay hands on. And Paul tells Timothy that appointing or confirming or laying on of hands is not to be taken lightly. Because if the church is not careful, it can have a huge mess on its hands, like apparently Timothy was facing in Ephesus. And historically, procedures for confirming men for ministry are based off of Paul's warning like this. And here at WCC and within our church network, Crossway Chapel, we have a vetting process that's based off of scriptural passages like this to bring people on. And I'm going to give you a high-level overview of what we do. We can say that first and foremost, we see elders are primarily from within the local body. They're part of the local church body. Now, where do we get that from? From Scripture. Okay, let's look at some passages. In Acts 14, 23, Paul, he's on his missionary journeys, and he's bringing people to believe in Christ. And afterwards, after they're built up and and, uh, discipled through, he says this, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1, five, which is really similar. Paul saying this to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And we can see that these people are coming from the town, from that local place. Ephesians 4 also speaks of God giving the local churches, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip those saints for the ministry. And we have guidelines and principles here at WCC. Uh, that inform our process, but it's not a rigid step-by-step program. After, at the beginning, we see someone who's first aspiring to that office of elder. Someone who has a desire, a felt call on their life to labor for the flock. Another part is they complete biblical distinctives. So theologically, we're all on the same page. They, they're gonna have to be an active part in the body, which includes being involved in a community group, serving the body in some capacity. Same time, they're going to be discipled or mentored by one of the pastors. And then we're going to see leadership on them. They're probably going to lead a community group, a shepherding ministry or youth ministry. And with that, they're going to be an active participant in monthly shepherding meetings where they meet together with Pastor Pat every month and discuss their ministry and how to grow their ministry. And then formally, they'll apply to be a pastor. It's a pastor in training application that they'll fill out by both the husband and wife. And the pastor team will assess the candidate's qualifications and the fit within that team. And if the current pastors affirm that candidate, they're going to be brought on as what we call a pastor in training. And that process is usually at least three months. And during that three months or at the beginning of it, they're going to be brought before the body. They're going to ask the body for any input or encouragement or hesitations with this man. And that, then during that three months, they're going to join the pastor's meetings uh, every week. They're going to uh, learn and observe if there's any development goals that are agreed on by the pastor team. They'll do that. And when the pastor team is in unity to affirm that candidate, he'll be brought before the body again to seek final input, encouragement, hesitations on that. And if the feedback is positive throughout that, that person's going to be formally recognized by the church body. We celebrate God's provision for another pastor. And the hope is that all these requirements prevent... A hasty confirmation of an elder. You see, it's good, Paul is saying. Proceed with caution. Because a person's calling for a ministry, it's not always obvious. Paul writes in the last two verses of the chapter this. He says, the sins of some men are conspicuous. Which means just clearly visible. Going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So we see four situations at play here. First, we see that some men are such blatant sinners that they're just clearly disqualified from leadership. They either can't control their tempers their tongues and their lives and their reputations just precede them wherever they go. Second, the sins of others are going to be found out eventually. Some sins are less conspicuous. Maybe they're more respectable sins. But when the peace of the church is eventually disturbed or there's a problem that comes up, these sins are going to come to light. Now third, Paul says that the character of a good man will be obvious. If someone's character is being questioned, or maybe we see a smear campaign or false accusations that are against him, and he is a man of integrity, then that's going to come out. It's shown that he's a faithful man through that, one who's worthy to be an elder. And fourth, and finally, Paul says that bad character and bad behavior cannot be concealed or hidden. And eventually, it's going to emerge and show themselves. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy here that you have to be patient in evaluating the potential elders to serve in the church. It takes time for the quality of their lives and their faith to become evident. And that concludes our section of Scripture So what do we get from it? We get that church order or church policy is important. We get that structure and honor and discipline, especially within our elders, are essential for one purpose, and that is to protect the gospel, to protect it and to be able to proclaim it and to be able to grow and mature in the gospel. Because without it, we have disorder, We have infighting, we have power struggles, and we're more inclined to dishonor the name of Christ. And I think Ephesians 4, 12 through 16 hits it best when we're talking about the purpose, the structure, the polity of the church, which is this, it says this, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love were to grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ from whom the whole body Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen on that? All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths, especially uh, these truths that they can be so hard to uphold sometimes. I pray specifically and thankfully for our team of elders here at WCC. I pray that you continue to to bless them and to draw them close to you and protect them from any works of the enemy. I pray that they maintain integrity in everything they do. I pray that we honor them as the spiritual leaders that they are, and that we let them do that cheerfully. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that we get to proclaim here in our local setting. That you came to redeem us, to make us new in you, and that that came through your shed blood on the cross and the resurrection from the dead to atone for our sin and bring us into your family. So help us, Lord, to know you more every day. We, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. Amen.